Live from Nordia House in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. So I had this Wizard of Oz style year one year. So me, my black and white world, Seattle, Washington. You've got the gray of the sky, the gray of the rain, the gunmetal blue of the Puget Sound turning gray because of the rain, and all around the dark of the evergreen forest. The black of my black and white world was a black of a shadow, a shadow that moved in the night. It's a shadow my sisters and I named the dark form. Then years and thousands of dollars of therapy later, we renamed it Dad. (laughs) I was going to college at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and I made a friend, Marcus, a Brazilian guy. And of course, like I peppered him with questions about his country, and he would tell me these amazing stories, and he would give me novels by Brazilian writers to read, and then he played me the music. And I thought, yeah. I want to go there. So on a day in January 1983, a nice cold Seattle day, 32 degrees and gray, I hopped a jet and off I went. About 20 hours later, I arrived in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I step out of that airport, freaking technicolor. I mean, The trees were this green, like obscenely green, like a spring I'd never seen before green. Some of them even had like giant purple flowers. The sky, blue. The water, blue. Even the dirt was kind of this caramel brown. And I just like looked around and I thought, oh God, I'm here. I had one phone number, so I called it right away. It was Marcus's parents' phone number, and they told me to come on over. And I was nervous, because the other part of this is it was 1983, so who showed up in Brazil in full punk regalia? (laughs) Yep, short hair, bangs down to the chin, rat tail. I was even wearing my best black and purple bowling shirt. (laughs) Now that worked for me in America, because that gave me a good amount of personal space. That gave me the stay the fuck away from me space. Now I'm meeting my friend's parents in a foreign country. So I went up there and was ready to meet them, and suddenly they just like lean in and they give me this hug and a kiss on each cheek. And God, that was nice. (laughs) And then a few hours later, Marcus's sisters and all his friends go up, and it's kisses hello, and then they grab me and throw me in the back of a VW bus, and we're just like this tangle of humanity, arms and legs laughing, and they take me up to Cocavado, which is the giant Jesus Christ that overlooks Rio de Janeiro. And I'm sitting out there at night, and the air was so soft and warm, it was like a caress on the cheek, and the lights are like dancing down below, and they're even dancing to the tune of samba music, which is rising up from the city, from all the different escologist sambas, because it's just three weeks before carnival. I took this deep breath in, exhaled, and I felt my shoulders relax for the first time ever. And it was awesome. Three weeks later, that whole group of friends, we all jumped into the bus again, and off we went 
to Bom Jesus. It's this little tiny city way outside of Rio, up in the mountains, to do carnival, which I was relieved because Rio gets a little wild during carnival. And it was just this great little small town. I was walking around. I didn't speak a damn of the language. I wasn't speaking Portuguese then, but I got to know everyone. So the final day there, I was the first gringa that ever danced in their carnival parade. <laughs> and I'm dancing, I'm going up and down the street, and the applause and the music, and I'm like thinking to myself, yes, I am here. And here I stayed. And eight months went by. And I was going, huh, okay, what am I doing? Am I actually going to try to make the work happen to make this place my home? Am I ever going to finish college? You know, what's going on here? And the truth was, what was going on is, I didn't freaking want to leave. I was too scared. I was living color in Brazil. This was awesome. So one night I went to teach English. That's how I was surviving in Brazil, was teaching English. And it was conversational English. So I had three businessmen and I had a colonel in the Brazilian military, Carlos. So I'd given these guys all like Americanized name and he was Chuck, which he loved. <laughs> so I turned to him and I say, Chuck, what's in your briefcase? I don't know, conversational English. And he goes, oh my teacher, I have my pen, I have my homework, I have my gun. What? You don't have a gun. And he goes, oh, yes, my teacher. I take my gun with me everywhere. And I go, oh, you did not bring a gun to my class, because I'm 21 and stupid. <laughs> and, and he goes, oh, yes. And he pulls out a gun. And I'm like, oh, OK, straight A for you, promise. And we're laughing. And he goes, oh, my teacher, do you have your papers to teach in Brazil? And I said, of course I have my papers to teach in Brazil. How else did I get the job? And he goes, oh, I'm so happy. Can I see your papers? So the dude knows I don't have my papers, you know, and I really know I don't have my papers, but now I'm thinking really fast. And I go, Chuck, look at me. I am a target in Rio de Janeiro. Come on, man, I can't carry my papers with me. They're going to be ripped off you know how hard it is to get papers in Brazil. And he goes, oh, my teacher, you're very smart. And I'm very happy that you have your papers because we will be raiding the schools in three weeks and I'd hate to take you to jail. <laughs> Time to finish that college education. But so, like, I, I don't want to, like, sneak out of Brazil, you know what I mean? Like, oh. Um, so that night, I talked to a buddy of mine, this English guy, and kind of let him know what was going on, because he taught there, too. And we decided, okay, one last big adventure. So hitchhiked out of Rio, and we hitchhiked up through the whole northeast of Brazil. It took over a month. And then we got to Belém at the mouth of the Amazon got on a slow-moving cargo boat where I put my hammock between the chickens and the goat, but the goat was really nice, so that was cool. 
and we arrived in Manaus, halfway up the Amazon, where we're going to fly out of. But we still had like 10 days to go. So we went to the docks, met this very sweet man, and hired him to take us into the heart of the jungle. And this guy was great. I mean, it was just me, Jonathan, this guy, little boat. He had made deals with families along the river for us to put up our hammocks wherever they had room. And these families, you know, they had created these little lives, these awesome lives, just you know, pushing back the jungle a bit to carve out space along the river. For like nine days, we swam in the Amazon. We went fishing in the Amazon. I actually got to see the pink of the dolphins in the Amazon. You know, I watched those dolphins turn over pink against that brown, and once again, it's like, God damn, am I ever going to see color like this again in my life? And we'd sit outside, just relaxing and listening to the noise of the jungle. I freaking hate to say this, but the Tarzan movies actually had it right. That's pretty much what it sounds like. <laughs> Except what you could never feel is that throb of life that was just incredible. Then at night, I'd sit out, I'd look up at the stars, and I wouldn't recognize a single damn one of them. And it made me feel so alone. My life in Rio, that had closed behind me. But what the hell was I going back to? So my final day at this one family's house, the farmer says, you want to go for a walk in the jungle? Well, hell yes, I want to go for a walk in the jungle, absolutely. He grabs his machete, I jump in my flip-flops, and off the three of us go. And we're walking along, and I'm taking it in. I mean, the canopy above, it's so beautiful, and we keep walking. And now as we get in there a little more, the ground is getting softer. We're not on the paths that they've been on. But we keep going, and it's really beautiful. And then suddenly, it gets incredibly soft, the ground. And it gets incredibly quiet. And you know that feeling when you walk out in a snowstorm, where the footing isn't very sure, and that just muffled quality? That's how it felt. And I took a minute to realize, yeah, I'm walking on what? How many millions of years of fallen leaves am I walking on here? But then I looked around, and the jungle had closed behind me. Guys, it really is a wall of green. And I can't see where I came from, and I have no idea where I am, except suddenly I'm realizing, oh my god, <laughs> I could die in here because I can't see the river, I can't see the compound, my sense of direction is completely just deranged. All I know is I got machete guy. And at that moment, a side of me that had been resting really nicely for about nine months woke up. Hypervigilant me took over. So now, I am not looking right, I am not looking left, I am just watching Machete Guy. Machete Guy will get me out of here, he will keep me alive. So we're walking and it's getting a little more unstable. At one point I kind of stumble and I go like this and I, Jonathan yells, stop! And I jerk my hand away. And there's the tree I was about to grab onto had these thorns up and down the trunk. And I'm like, okay, jungle's gonna kill me. So just keep going, follow Machete Guy no matter what. Now the machete's really coming into play. And we're like going under things and holding back brush and everything's just piling in close. So he finally hacks through and we get to this kind of little opening. And I'm like, oh great, and I'm holding a branch for Jonathan. I see Machete Guy getting a little farther ahead of me. He suddenly looks down, looks up, looks at me and yells, run, and takes off. There goes Machete Guy. 
So like I start running because that's what I'm going to do. And I look down and I see this moving line on the jungle floor. And I'm like, oh, God, ants. Okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to jump? No, I'm in flip-flops. That's not going to end well. So I run through them. And I feel the burning of that fire ants as they bite me. And I'm brushing off ants. And I'm hoping Jonathan's behind me because of that moment. It is everyone for themselves and God against all and follow machete guy. So machete guy takes a right. So I take a right and suddenly, boom, we are back at his compound. I don't know how long I was in the jungle. I don't freaking know how I got back to the compound. And I was just standing there just bucketing sweat. And the farmer looks at me and just cracks up. He goes, you were scared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the worst part was I was fucking terrified. And it was a feeling I've known ever since I was two years old. That was a life I was going back to. The next night I was at the Manaus airport, sitting outside, listening to the jungle, just hoping to God that I could hold on to that side of me that had been living in color, the side of me that was just so happy, just wanting that part to stay with me. You know, I didn't want to live hyper-vigilant me. That's fucking exhausting to live like that. Got on the plane and headed home. But what I didn't realize that was just amazing was those two sides of me started to work together. And within a few months of getting back to college in Olympia, I started therapy. That thousands of dollars of therapy I talked about, that started. And then within a few years of that, I finally had the courage. I called Child Protective Services and sicked them on my father. And then I was able to extract my kid sister out of the house. And on a fall day, I took her to SeaTac, perp walked her through that damn airport. And back then you could do this. I put her on a plane and watched till it was gone sending her off to live with my older sister, who was a lot more stable than me at that moment. And I watched her leave, and I'm like, God, I hope she gets off that plane and feels what it's like to live in color. And I walked out of SeaTac Airport, and I honestly looked around Seattle, and you know what? It was kind of pretty. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs>